right. Well, uh, I hope you have your notes in front of you. We're back in the book of Romans, lesson 19. We're in sanctification part three. That is, we're in chapter six, seven, and eight. And we're taking a look specifically at verses one to 10, though I have made the point that here under that blue line that we're going to be mentioning up to verse 23 today. I have a disclaimer for today's talk, okay? So this is super important. And that is, today is heavily theological. Now, that doesn't scare this church. That doesn't scare this group. But what I say is this. Uh, it's not as much a walking one, two, three, here's how to read your Bible and pray kind of Roman 6 look. But it's a heavy theological backdrop, especially the second part of my notes, as to what are we supposed to be thinking about the imperatives of Scripture relative to our sanctification, or put another way. God commands us, and first, the very first command in the book of Romans, the very first command in the entire book of Romans, happens within this text we're going to look at today. When you think about it, Paul has gone six plus chapters and never said, now go do this. Now, the implications of what Paul has said have a lot of go do this behind them. Because Paul's ethic of spirituality is not simply from command, but it's also from mercy. Romans 12 will start that way. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I don't even need to command you. But I beseech you in light of mercy that you would do this because of love. And the greatest of all of the reasons and motives to serve God is love. But we're also commanded... And to serve in love. And so, today as we look at it, Paul's finally getting to a command. And this is Paul's motif, as I mentioned last week. And that is, Paul always begins in his books, the indicative, and moves to the imperative. He starts with what is true. And usually his books say two or three things. Who is God? And what he's done for us? Almost all of his books start out with, with this. Who is God and what has he done? And then the bridge between that and a command, Paul almost always goes into who we are in Christ. Right? Who is God? And then all of the teachings that Paul will do and how we may have failed him and how we need salvation. And then Paul will go into, what did God do about our problem? And how has he done all of this for us? And then he moves to, therefore, you are these are true of you if you're in Christ, right? And he'll go, all of these are indicatives. That is, what is true and what is indicative of you, and what is true in light of those things. Then Paul, in his books, turns every time to the imperatives. Usually, therefore, is the word that will cue you, but not always. And at some point in his book, he will move to, therefore, in light of who God is, in light of what Christ has done for us, in light of who we are in union with Christ, in our new identity, in our new birth, in light of all those amazing things, therefore, brethren, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God to present your bodies. That is a typical motif of Paul. Here we get the first, of the first command in the book of Romans. What is it about? Well, it's kind of two things. He says, consider and then present. Count the things to be true, all these things that I've just said, Paul's saying. Count them to be so. And then present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice. Present yourselves to righteousness and not to unrighteousness. But this is the first time he's commanded us. Does that make it any less important? No. But you would think the whole book of Romans would be like one giant command. You know? Stop doing that. There's going to be a lot of that now in the book of Romans. So I want to dive in today in our theological conversation and start out with some quote by Michael Horton, who's a professor of theology and uh, has a podcast, The White Horse Inn. But all that to say, speaking on this matter, he says this. Paul's entire argument in Romans 6 rests on the fact that something has already happened. He does not say, that is Paul does not say, if you yield your body to righteousness, you will die to sin. That's not what Paul says. But rather, for we know that our old self was crucified with him. It's already done. He does not say, make sure that sin does not master you as many believe that sin can master a so-called carnal Christian. But rather, Paul says, for sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Do you see the difference? Not imperatives, but indicatives. If we put our imperatives before the indicatives of Scripture, we're going to run off with a half idea of what we're supposed to be doing. And create all kinds of means of, this is what I'm supposed to do to be sanctified. And we're going to start trying to crucify the old man within when it already has been done. We're going to spend a lot of time doing what has already been done in an effort. Now, do we have to put off sin and all? Yes, Paul's getting there. Paul's getting there. But the imperative indicative conversation is super important in every book. And finding out what is already true of us that we don't have to replicate then what do we do in light of that indicative? Now, the second paragraph, I think, is cool because he quotes a couple of catechisms. And uh, to this point, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, for even the holiest of Christians makes only a small beginning in obedience in this life. I feel that. Nevertheless, they begin with serious purpose to conform not only to some, but to all of the commandments of God. The Westminster Confession adds, even our best works, as they are wrought by us, are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. He's speaking, the Westminster Confession here is speaking about sanctification, not salvation. I identify with that. You know, sometimes I think of the Westminster Confession or other great confessions of the faith, and I think, if I read that, it's going to tell me, All of us perfect saints who are writing this are currently condemning you for your Christian life. But what I find in the catechisms and the the great confessions is that they were quite aware of Romans 7 and quite aware of the battle within and that no one in this life reaches the ultimate levels of spiritual reality. But every one of us is to strive aggressively for sanctification. So the question arises, says Michael Horton, then why pursue good works at all? Why should we even be interested in sanctification? And what he says is, from the biblical point of view, morning brother, sanctification is not a matter of holiness as an end in itself. And what he's about to say, I find to be the most important thing we're probably going to talk about today. It would be selfish for us to focus our whole lives on our own growth and improvement. So the scriptures constantly point us outside of ourselves to love and to serve God and our neighbor. So much of contemporary spirituality 
is individualistic, private, and self-centered. The spiritual formation movement. And all kinds of self-help Christian books. I don't mean just from nominal Christians, but people within our own camp on methodologies of spirituality that are largely twaddle. And that's such a good word. Such a good English word. Let's put twaddle. They're twaddle. So, so much of contemporary spirituality is individualistic, private, and self-centered. How can I be happy? How can I have victory? How can I reach the higher life? Instead, biblical piety is concerned with working out the implications of what God has already done in Christ. When I turn my attention to that, that God is causing in me Christ's likeness for the benefit of his church, the benefit of others, and to serve him, it's not all altruistic. Of course, I want to be more like Christ. I want to experience all of that in Christ. But that is not the goal of spirituality. And so many of the things that I got into as a young Christian, I now look back on and I say they were a waste of time and I, they were really self-centered. You know, what seemed good at the time, some prayer movements I got into or Bible memory or whatever, none of those are bad things. Uh, but I got into them as a system because I thought that would lead me to more that holy higher plane and I would be up there and serve the Lord more. And what I found is that recognizing our frailty and recognizing our weakness in Christ and then recognizing also that we're serving others instead of ourselves will make all the difference. Yeah, Steve. Sometimes though it seems as though... Yeah. It might not be a selfish attitude, mm-hmm. but sometimes you want to feel like, how can I help somebody else until I get... Yes. That's right. Physician, heal thyself. Right? No, Steve's point is, sometimes I don't feel selfish as much as if I'm not filled, if I, my cup's not filled, how can I help somebody else? And I think it's a, it's a two things. It is the idea of physician, heal thyself, and it's the idea of the wounded healer, uh, book by Dan Allender back in the 1990s. But the wounded healer is you never get to a point in ministry that you reach a point where, hey, now I'm able to minister to everybody because I'm above them or I'm killing it. But God often takes us through as leaders and ministers and disciple makers our own walk with him where we're constantly throwing ourselves at the cross and preaching the gospel to ourselves so that when we turn to others, 2 Corinthians 1 says, with the comfort that God has comforted you, comfort the others. I think it has to do with being wounded, like being a velveteen rabbit, you know, of being real. And there's an authenticity to the struggle. What we're not talking about is struggle so that you can share. But rather, I, I get what you're saying. Now, on the converse... It's easier for people to drink out of a running stream rather than a stagnant pool. So teachers ought to be in the Word, and the Word should be real in your life. And people can pick that up. Like, are they in the Word, or is that just something they heard about? But at the same time, we can't believe the, I would say a lie, that until we reach a certain plateau, you know, we're not going to be able to minister effectively. I think you do it out of your weakness. You know, Paul talks about, you know, out of his own weakness that God's grace was sufficient. And so, again, we're not saying dismiss spirituality, but as we work towards being more holy, it's saying, God, how can you use me? Because he uses weak people. 
He just he uses sinners, and uh, nobody who's in the ministry should be able to think, dude, I've reached a point now where I can minister to all these slobs, because you know I've reached apex six, you know. So, so, all right, good point. All right, let's jump into the indicative. And so the first ten verses in chapter six. Hey, welcome everybody. When I just looked up, more people are in the room. Apparently you haven't heard I'm teaching today. (laughs) The first 10 verses are indicatives. Okay? Chapter 6, 1 to 10, indicatives. These things are true of us. They are not commands, and they are not, hey, go make sure you do this. This will help if you've never read it this way before. Let me read verses 1 to 10 there in the middle of the page. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know? And that is, do you not know that this is already the way it is? Don't you? You know this, right? Okay. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized in his death? All of us were baptized into the spirit baptism on the day of our salvation. You know that you've all been baptized into his death. It's not a special elite thing. Everyone has received it. Verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Because these things are true, we're going to be able to walk a new life. The indicatives that he's sharing. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Those are synonymous. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Well, I've put at least six things to get our conversation going that seem true in this passage that are true of us from the moment of our salvation. Here they are at the bottom of the page. We died to sin. Feeling that in your life today? Right? Right. What kind of sin did we die to? Right? The power and authority of sin is now no longer our master. Not sin individual, but the power of indwelling sin that used to be in the old man will continue. And look at this. We are baptized, we are buried, and then resurrection. We died, we are buried, and we're in the likeness of his resurrection. That's the gospel. Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day for our sins. That's the picture that is given to us. And we were, in terms of God's imputation, we died with Christ to the power of sin. We were buried with him, and we will be in the likeness of his resurrection. And the old self was crucified. Let's stop. The old self. Um, The old self is crucified. What is Paul talking about? If we think that the old self is the desire for sin or the indwelling sin in us, 
that it was crucified, we're going to have a really hard time explaining our current life. But there are movements in sanctification that are saying the old self is crucified, but also you need to crucify it. Right? And you have to do this work to get rid of it. But Paul is not talking about the old self as in the sin nature. He's talking about the completely in Adam self. The person dead in their, their, their trespasses and sins. The person who's totally depraved. The old person before the cross. You are not that person anymore. You're new in Christ. You're a completely different person. You died. That old person is no longer your master. That old person is not your identity. Your identity is in Christ. And so what has been crucified is the power and authority of that person. And there is residual sin within but that person is not competing with the new person. Let's we'll do it a different way. Happy Christian. People make the mistake of saying there's an old self and the new self as if you have two completely equal authorities taking place or two completely equal entities in power. But that is not the case at all. We're not the old man and the new man at the same time. We are the new person. The old is no longer the dude. But there is the flesh. And the flesh is a smaller word that simply means the residual, complicated life you had before that we're constantly trying to get rid of. The thinking patterns of the old world. Putting off patterns of the past. Put off, put on. You're not fighting a completely self-contained person within. Right? You don't have two different people within. But you have a propensity from the practice of sin. You have a propensity from the power of sin's uh, desirability. And its deceptiveness because it's so fun that it is constantly in fighting. But you don't have another individual inside of you. Paul didn't say, hey, we crucified this guy but he's still mad, you know. So, so he's real mad now that he got crucified, you know. So he's he's fighting you. Paul's gonna, in terms of terminology, he's saying that whole person who didn't understand the scriptures, who did not do the will of God, who constantly fought God, who did its own way, who was self-centered, all of that, that person's gone. That person is gone. You see, but I don't feel that every day. Uh, that's what Paul's going to spend three chapters on to try to convince you that you are this new person. You don't have to feel that experientially every minute. It's not Paul's not commanding you feel this experientially. He is going to say believe it, but the experience of it is very different. See, we don't have a problem with thinking that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, uh, he had a resurrection body, right? I mean, he had his physical body. But he was back from the dead. He wasn't dead anymore and he was alive. And we're like, yeah, I get that. But we wouldn't say, well, Jesus is still dead. No, we'd say he's alive. What we're being told is that we are alive now and we are no longer dead in our sins. All right, let's go to page two. Let me unpack this a little more. I'm throwing around terms and I'm not defining anything, so let me do that. Best baby ever. The only baby who doesn't have a sin nature. <laughs> We're so thankful the Lawrence has brought them. 
if, if they like my teaching, they can always come back. <laughs> All right, page two, sorry. Uh, things to think about about this. As believers, our sin has been imputed to Christ, and Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, and we have been declared righteous before God. Bam. Secondly, Christ defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave. Christ defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave. God imputes Christ's victory over those foes as being true of us, and with the additional reality of our regeneration, we are now really and truly new creatures in Christ. God did just not simply impute the notion that those are true to us, but by regeneration, He has actually made us new. We are a new person in Christ. I'm so thankful that Dave Doyle 1.0 is gone. Now, I have to admit, I kind of like Dave 1.0 at times. I liked him when he was killing it, but Dave 1.0 about killed me. And I'm so thankful that I'm not that person anymore. So sin as a ruling power no longer has authority in our lives. Sin no longer has dominion and no longer the ruling power within us. I'm going to take a risk here and ask a question of the audience. And uh, what I'm going to ask you if you raise your hand and I call on you is to be concise. Okay? But I'm going to ask you to think of this because I want to get real about this. When in your early Christian experience did you first have an experience where you realized that the ruling power of sin was no longer there. That is, when did you start seeing that you had a real break with the who you used to be? And either in your thoughts, or your desires, or your words, or your actions, or you know the way you viewed the world, but you woke up and you saw life differently, or you, you'd made a decision you never would have made, and you started to see something and go, what, did, what happened here? Yeah, Morek. The next day. The next day. <laughs> That's a little too concise, sister. I received them on Saturday night. Hadn't been in church in years. Next day I was in church. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, John. I just had a love for the word of God. I never did. And I hadn't read books in years. I started reading Christian books. Someone so, so awesome. So, yes, ma'am. Um, desire to obey rather than desire to follow Hmm. Mm. That's really strong. Yeah, at least. Wow. The new year. Yes, Steve. Um, the des- when I realized that the desire to no longer be a womanizer, mm. Mm. It, 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 I, I saw women in a different light. Yes. And, that is awesome. It's awesome. It changes us. It totally changes us. It's good. Yeah. Yes, sir. Mark. Yeah. To tell the truth. And face the truth. Isn't that an amazing power? Yeah. Yeah. Karen. Well, I thought I was a Christian, and when I got saved, I realized I wasn't. Mm. You thought you were saved, and then you realized I hadn't been saved. Right. That's good. Yeah. Novel. Leave some relationships behind. Hmm. Leaving relationships behind. Yeah, a clean break. Mr. German, and then John. Yeah. Um, it took me about a week. I started, I, 
I recognized the change in my thinking, mm. and um, I started to totally put my my trust in in the Lord Jesus. Yes. And yeah. there was there were some big things that were were looming, and I just said, I trust. I trust. That's good. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah, John. Um, when I when I realized that I needed to find a church that really mm. really honored God and preached the Word of God, not just mm-hmm. gather. Mm. A change in the kind of church. Yeah. That's good. On a journey. Yes. You wouldn't stop until you find. It. Yeah. Dana. Mine was really pretty dramatic, but um, it was me opening the Bible and going, "Oh my word, this is a clear." Yes, yes. Clear, and nothing like I thought it was, and like, understood, like, this is the truth. Mm. Oh my word, this is mm. the truth. Yes. And, and it, yes. it definitely puts you, it, it, undone. Undone. Because everything undone. you held to be true is now so, yes. it's actually the That's right. So. To the point where you're, you're almost like, did I get new glasses? Because this actually makes sense now. You know, that's good. All right, anyone else? Just, just real quick. Okay, good. That's it, isn't it? When Paul says these things are true of us, it came as a package. Everybody who's truly born again got the package. Right? And there's a whole bunch of things. Uh, I think Lewis Berry Chafer has a little thing. 31 things that happened to you the moment of your conversion. And every one of those has happened to you. Bam! And they all, we all got the menu. Nobody got 12. And then somebody got 19. We all got 31, at least 31 things that are true of us at the moment of our conversion. And it is that package that Paul's talking about. Is These are true of you. You're dead to the old way. You're alive. How do you know that you're alive? You're breathing spiritually. How do you know the wind is blowing? You can't see it, but you can feel the effect. And what Paul's talking about here is the consequent things that you can't see necessarily, but are true of us from the moment of our conversion, and we begin to see the effects of them in a changed life. They just, that's what God does. All right, continue to labor here. Additionally, death is no longer our master. Now, he's moving from sin that we've been living in is no longer our master. We don't have to. But now he's even pointing forward to our death. And he's saying, you don't have to fear death, something he picks up in another passage. Death no longer has hold over you, 1 Corinthians 15. And he's saying that death itself is no longer our master because it cannot hold us, because the grave, I'm sorry, because it cannot hold us in the grave just as it was unable to hold Christ in the grave. Death's power is sin, and because of Christ's victory over sin and our identity in him, we are freed from the penalty and ruling power of sin. You know, Christians, we shouldn't fear death. I fear pain. <laughs> you know, I don't like pain a whole lot. You know, uh, I hope my death is not painful, but there's no guarantee of that, right? As a pastor, I've been at many situations where you realize death can be very painful. Um, but we should not fear death. Man, every day of my life. No, that's that's too dramatic. That's too language of romanticism in the 1800s. I don't think there's a month that goes by that I don't have serious contemplation about my future destiny in heaven. And where I think, this life is short, and I'm not afraid to die. I'm looking forward to being on the other side of this. Um, and 
this is such a small window of time, and this is not all there is. So notice the indicatives above. Okay, so the point is, notice those indicatives, who we are in Him. The pattern is death, burial, and resurrection is true of Christ. It's true of us because of our union with Christ. And the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the essential content of the gospel message as described by Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance, says Paul, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Let me stop there. That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That's why why it's a great mechanism for our own spiritual life. Preach the gospel to yourself as a Christian. I was a sinner. I could not save myself. But Christ came and he died and he paid for my sins on the cross according to the scriptures. He was buried. But he rose again for the third day proving that sin, death, hell, and the grave had been taken care of and that my sins were forgiven and I could have a newness of life in him. Preach the gospel to yourself that you are just a sinner. You're not, oh, oh, I'm Elizabeth Elliot. <laughs> Elizabeth Elliot, one of my favorite people. But she would say of herself, trusting the Lord. Trusting the Lord. And so we should preach the gospel. That pattern here is Romans 6. Did you know you're dead? Did you know you were buried? Did you know you rose again with Christ? And as such, the old person is dead. You're in a newness of life. And even though when you have residual flesh actions, it is not indicative, not to be funny, but it's not an indication that you are the old person. The final indicative, no longer slaves to sin in this passage, is something that is true of us, bless you, and not something we are trying to make a reality. Sin is not the master of a truly born-again person. Remember our picture from last week, that when he speaks of sin, he's speaking of at least three things. The principle of indwelling sin is broken. It's not our master. But we will still have individual sins, and occasionally we will sin a lot. But if we live a lifestyle of sin, the outer circle, the person living the lifestyle of sin should look back in and say, I may not have been broken from the ruling power of sin. I may not be a Christian, right? You see where that pattern would be. But as a real believer, that pattern is broken. It cannot be your master. You see, yeah, but I don't experience that. Yeah, you do. (laughs) Yeah, no, you do. Okay, how many of you became Christians after you were 30 years old? This is going to be the easy crowd. Do you see a definite difference between who you were and who you are? Totally. You see that. How many of you became Christians before you were 10? Did you struggle at any point in your early Christian life with, I wonder if I'm really a Christian because you hadn't had all that build up? Anybody? Yeah, a few? Yeah, okay. And that's a common pattern, right? Uh, that, that you come to Christ early and you've been saved from all this nonsense. I mean, I've never met anybody who was saved at four or five years old who became like a Las Vegas Raider fan. (laughs) They're safe from that kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. But you get... (laughs) Carlo became a Christian at maybe four, maybe five years old. Uh, One of my sons did, etc. And then there's sometimes later, it's like, 
I didn't come out of all that wickedness. I didn't come out of, you know, I am a sinner, but you don't always see the distinction. But if you came later in life, I was 18, not by any means antiquated, but there was a definite break and difference in my life. You do know that you've been changed. And so we get on to the next verses, page three. Regarding the old self, John Stott says this, Our old self denotes not our lower self, not that sin nature, but our former self, the man we once were. Our old humanity, the person we used to be in Adam. So what was crucified with Christ was not a part of us called our old nature but the whole of us as we were in our pre-conversion state. This should be clear because the phrase our old self was crucified is equivalent to we died to sin in Romans 6.2. I spent a number of years under the theology that would have taught me early in my Christian life that um, the old man was crucified simply meant something, and crucified would have been funny, but that, that the old nature... Uh, had been defeated, but was really almost completely intact. You know, that was the, the equivalent of what I was being taught. They wouldn't say it quite that way, but it was like, oh, dude, the old nature owns you, buddy. You know, you're like, it does? Um, <laughs> Galatians chapter 2, 5, and 6 goes along this line. Paul mentions being crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, I'm taking this verse out of context, but it does sound like you could make an argument in this verse. Well, they're the ones who crucified it. They lived out a sanctified life. But Paul's actually making a statement of an indicative here. He's saying, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's another distinction. Um, I'm not part of that system. Now, if you're like a real Christian in here, and you've been through Romans before, and you've thought about these implications, there is a great conflict, non-resolved area in between those statements. A paradox that seems like a contradiction. And namely, I've been crucified, but I'm still struggling with sin. It's that daily experience that we have versus what Paul's saying. But what Paul is not saying is, this happened, therefore you won't sin. We can't mix those. He's not saying your sinning has all gone away, but rather the power that used to own you. Good, okay. But the reality is, as Christians, we struggle with sin, and then we look for systems by which to fix that. And again, even if you're in a good church that teaches God's Word, it's possible that each of us has been more like Oprah Winfrey Christians, and we just pick and choose the verses that make sense to us, and we create a system of sanctification. And I have fought that over the years of my own life. I've had many different sort of systems worked out. If I do this, or maybe if God does that, or uh, this, is, this part's on me and all that. And so this should be an interesting ride 
as we go forward. So now we get to verse 11, the first imperative in the book of Romans. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This word here, consider, Paul's telling you to do something, to consider. It's the same word, or one of the words, I should say. There are several words used for this. It's one of the words that we would also say impute. Count it to be so. Reckon it so. Uh, look at it and realize that that's the way it is, and I'm going ma- to say that is true of that. Paul's first command in the entire book is not go do something, but to accept as true. Because it's so hard to accept. It's not a mind game. He's not calling us to a psych out. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. Why am I sinning? Why am I sinning? But he's calling us to believe. Now, I'm not going to borrow from my sermon, but you know I'm preaching on living by faith. And this is a faith thing. Paul's first command is to believe something. To consider it to really be true of you. And to say, I am dead to the old person. I am alive in Christ. They are not an authority over me. And what Christ says is real. And he's my master. Before you, before you obey him, in the specifics, it's the belief that that is true. Now, functionally and theologically, I think we believe that, but I think Paul is pressing us here by saying, reckon it, consider it. Now, some have made a formula out of this, you know, almost like you have to psych your mind into it. Consider it to be so. Yes. Yes, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm totally, like, considerating it. Yeah. I'm, I'm so considerating it. It's like anything in the Word of God that you're called to believe. It is to trust God at His Word and by implication do something about it. If it's true that we're dead, then how should people alive from the dead act? They should formulate their life as being alive. So verse 12, Therefore, second command, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Ah! Don't let the residual dude flesh man don't let sin reign in your bodies don't give them a, an opportunity don't, don't open the door don't allow sin to have any pattern in your life over your mortal bodies that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body third command, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, of unrighteousness. What Paul is talking about here is what we did naturally before. These are the patterns of our life. This is just what we did. Paul's saying, um, okay, this is what you just do. This is how you roll. You, you always turn left at this street. That's what you've done for 30 years. You always go up the street, turn left, and you head to this, this thing. That's how you do it. And Paul's saying, you know, you're no longer under that traffic pattern. They've built a highway. So you don't have to go there. So stop turning left at the stop sign and take the highway and do that. But we're so conditioned to it. We're so, but there's no power to do that now. There's no law behind it. Before, there might have been a law at turning left. That's the way the traffic laws are of depravity. But that's not the way it is anymore. You've now been freed from that traffic law, and you can get on the expressway. 
But we're going to turn left just out of habit. That's why we have to renew our minds. That's why we have to renew those things within and, and count them as, as, um, as uh, behind us. And so, but present yourselves, fourth command, to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. All right, I'm going to take a risk. You guys are awesome, concise answers. How practically speaking have you found that you're able to present yourselves to God in a meaningful way for His service and as an instrument of righteousness? How do you go about it in your life, in your daily life? Something you pray, something you do. Not looking for a formula, just taking stuff. We've got a lot of scripture before us. But practically speaking, because Paul is saying that's the, that's the implication of being dead and alive, that we present ourselves to that. Does anybody have anything that, in your own spiritual life, that you have found helpful, effective, as you present yourself to God? Elise? exactly what she said, but ending up serving in a sort of practical needs ministry, but making yourself available to that, because that's precisely one of the things I would want to hear. That's not just a formula of, I get on my left knee, and I, you know, I hold the sacred cow out, and I pray, present myself, but the practical implication is just what you said, that by presenting ourselves to God's purposes, that is, we end up functionally in things which God wants done. And some of it looks like work stuff at church, and some of it looks like just simple child care, and some of it, they're practical outcomes of loving our neighbor and loving God. That is what it means to present our bodies. That it's not an internal formula that we constantly have our, I, you know, have this spiritual aura, I saw blue light, and all that, but, you know, although I did, I did see that. <laughs> just kidding, Brian. Yeah, just kidding. That's good. Yeah, Becky. Add to what you said, too. Yeah. That may look different yes. from one month to the other, from yes. one to the other. Yes. And and I agree with what yeah. you're all are saying that yeah. you should be willing to step in if you know that you have mm-hmm. you can do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's okay. absolutely right. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. For me it's like thinking about my thinking patterns. Mm. Recognizing oh, I'm thinking something that actually line up with the word of God or what God would want from me. And yes. like having dominion over my thoughts is really hard. Yes. 
Are you thinking of that verse, taking every thought captive to obedience to Christ? Yeah. Um, that's presenting your body, you know, taking your mind. You know, very good. Yeah. Man, the Word of God is the key to sanctification, right? And, uh, and we'll do more of that next week. But oh, by, by way of that, on just on memorizing Scripture, I don't know if uh, any of you know, but Gabe's, Pastor Gabe's dad uh, preaches also, and he's coming to preach here in the month of March. Um, and he's preaching in Philippians, where Pastor Gabe has been preaching. But the way uh, Gabe's dad does it is he comes and he quotes the entire book of Philippians from memory. And then he will, with what time he has left, <laughs> uh, share with us exhortations from the book. And then also in April, he's going to return for a Sunday evening, a special event, Gabe's dad. And he's going to quote the entire book of Revelation from memory. No, yeah, it's totally awesome. I've seen a part of it. And so we're going to be blessed by Henry. I mean, seriously, you know, the Word of God changes your mind. When, when I first became a Christian, I'm sorry, I don't mean to steal your thunder. It does. Yeah. And I find that when I decided I was going to memorize an entire book, yes, it changes. You get the pattern in your mind and renewing your mind through Scripture, right? When, when the person who led me to Christ discipled me for the first two years uh, of my life and deeply met with me, met with me every morning, Monday to Friday from si- at 6 a.m. for a year and a half. That's crazy discipleship. And so in doing that, is one of the first things was I was coming out of drug use and my mind was gone and all those things. And he was like, you need to start memorizing scripture. We need to put this pattern different. And uh, that saved my life, if you will. Those first year and a half was just memorizing all scriptures and books of the Bible. And then, you know, he's just like, memorize, memorize. And it changed my mind. It changed my, my perspective. Because before that, I was like, you know, so. And God's goodness. Man, I, time today. All right, bottom of page three. <laughs> my next, like, three pages. There's no way I'm doing this today, but I'm going to start it. <clears throat> This is the theological part I wanted to talk to you guys about. An introduction to biblical spirituality then. What do we do? Memorize scripture, pray. What, what are the disciplines? What, are the, what is biblical spirituality and what is just hunky-dunk? Like, do we have to fast? I think fasting is good. Okay, I'm not even going to be funny. I'll just keep going. What is biblical spirituality in its goal? This is what I've said on the matter. The term biblical spirituality refers to that aspect of the outworking of the doctrine of sanctification that focuses both on its parameters and its purpose. By biblical parameters, I mean that both the principles, the indicatives and the imperatives, and the practices, the means and methods, are derived from Scripture by clear command and example, and thus, by extension, the principles and practices conform to sound doctrine. Let me stop there. Even in our camp, we believe the Bible's sufficient. We're Calvinist. And some of you are like, I'm not a Calvinist. We'll pray for you. (laughs) You'll be fine. Okay. But at Hope Bible Church, we're like Calvinist and cessationist and complementarians. And we believe in a young earth and seven-year tribulation and premillennialism. And we're, we're awesome. We're better than everybody else. <laughs> Melba said, "Amen." We also have a problem with pride, don't we, Melba? So, uh, 
<laughs> um, but it is possible to agree with the indicatives, that's who we are in Christ, agree that those imperatives are there, I must act, God has something for me, and then on the methods and materials of spirituality, completely lose your mind. I think it's like this. I have found in the last 30 years or so that godly Christian couples in dealing with their children's health or their own health tend to have a bandwidth in their home. And they don't always agree on how to do it. And it goes something like this. The husband might think, just in this case, hey, our children are sick, or I'm really sick, or I'm really sick, and we got to a point where we really need help. We should go see like a doctor. But then in our age, we also have people. Now, it's going to be the wife in this case. It could be the other way around. No, it could be. The wife is like, we need to go to an alternative medicine person. And when you get there, you realize they're like a witch doctor. And you're like, I take a rubber chicken and I put it around my head while I take the formula. That's the thing. Okay, I've already insulted a few people in here. It's possible to have completely different views about how to treat something. And that is exactly what's happening in spirituality today. People's methods and means do not come from the scriptures. So they follow ideas about spirituality. But what we have to find out is what does the Bible actually say about how to be sanctified? And what are the means and methods it gives, not just the indicatives and the imperatives? Because everyone in this room who loves Jesus is eventually going to go, Amen, brother, right? Those are true of us. We should do that. How? That's what I'm bridging the gap to, to next week. What does Scripture say about actually how to be sanctified? What do you have to do? And how do you do this? Do you fast? Do you pray? Do you, those are the things. By stating that the term spirituality refers, my third dot down, to the purpose behind the principles and practices, I mean that spirituality is a relationship with the Holy Spirit that leads to a greater Christ-likeness, which is the purpose of our election by God, as stated in Romans 8. Then Charles Ryrie says, in defining the concept, stay with me, of spirituality, he explains, here is a proposed definition of spirituality which attempts to be concise at the same time to keep these above-discussed factors in mind. Spirituality is a grown-up, yet growing relation to the Holy Spirit. While this may be uh, simply be another way of saying that spirituality is Christian maturity, it tries to delineate more openly the factors of spirit control over a period of time. Certainly the definition satisfies the requirements of the description of a spiritual man in 1 Corinthians 2. For one who is experiencing a grown-up relationship to the Holy Spirit will be able to discern all things and at the same time will not be understood by others. What does that mean? We'll go to the next page. At the end of the day when we say, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to have biblical spirituality? We mean this. You cannot be spiritual without the Holy Spirit. But it is possible to be spiritual, but not be spiritual mature. Being spiritual is being filled, led, controlled by the Holy Spirit in the case and time. It's possible to be the most spiritual person in this room, maybe the youngest person in the Lord. To be spiritual, as defined by the Holy Spirit, is controlling your life and filling you and the fruits of the Spirit are there. The Spirit can be manifestly doing that in someone's life in here 
who's been a Christian all of a week. But they're totally yielded to him. The Spirit has control of their life. And God is using that person significantly. Many of you had that when you first came to Christ. And other Christians who've been around for years were sort of like fumbling their way through Jesus. And you're like, he's alive! He rose from the dead! You can't believe this! Spirituality is different than spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is how long you've... A long obedience in the same direction is the name of a book. That's what spiritual maturity looks like. And during spiritual maturity, you can have seasons of spirituality. You're more or less more mature, and more or less your life is more spiritually oriented. That is, the Spirit of God is taking control more often. But it's possible to be spiritually mature and be carnal at that moment. I'm not talking about a carnal Christian life. I'm talking about having moments of fleshliness. And so that's why it's very odd when we talk about that. We have to talk about both. Being controlled by the Spirit, living, walking in the Spirit is a manifest thing that happens on a regular daily basis. At the same time, being spiritually mature has to do with how long and what means that you've used. The means of grace is what people call them. I prefer the means of growth because there is nothing you can do that gives you grace. You know the words. The means of grace. I grew up Roman Catholic. Uh, What they meant was, hey, do this sacrament and you'll get grace. There's grace in the sacrament. And God will give you grace. There is no means of grace. There's means of growth. So all that to say, we need to discover what those means of growth are and what God does and how he uses those to sanctify us. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The same direction. I believe it's a book by a man named Eugene Peterson. Is that right, Steve? Yeah. Okay. It's got a great title, even if it's a lousy book. But it's actually a good book. And that's the point of it. A long obedience in the same direction is spiritual maturity. Okay, top of page four, just a few more comments today. So in summary of what I'm trying to say, whether I've said it well or not, biblical spirituality is growth and genuine Christ-likeness. By the power of the Spirit, through God-given practices clearly commanded and exampled in Scripture. And so, leaving you with this, the conversation about fasting, that's what's been in my head. Is it a means of growth for New Testament Christians to fast? Should we be fasting because it's commanded? Should we fast because it was exampled, right, in the Old and New Testament? There were biblical characters who fasted. And even if we're going to fast because we believe it's a New Testament carryover as something we should do, to what end are we fasting? Is it fasting for repentance? Is it fasting for begging God to do stuff? Is it fasting for, uh, to clear ourselves from those things which are holding us? Is it a fast unto the Lord. That's what Isaiah talks about. Fasting unto the Lord. Or is it fasting as a discipline because we thought, not as a Christian I'm going to gain merit with God, but if I do this, I'm more spiritual. And I'll close with a silly illustration, but it's true. It really happened to me. So, um, I was with some other godly Christians and our our senior pastor regularly fasted and he fasted once a year, every year, 
for a period of time just to sort of get away, read the scriptures. He would take a few weeks off. And he would regularly fast 30 to 40 days. Okay? So on his big break. So after one of those big times, he came back to the pulpit. He'd been away for a month. He fasted the entire month. And so he came back and he's like, and he never went up, I fast, you know? But we knew it. And so he came back and he's preaching and there was power in his preaching. And you're like, man, what just happened here? Is he in bounds, you know? Um, and so three of my friends, yeah, three of my friends in the church and myself decided we're going to fast. And we're going to go after this because this will greatly help us. This man is one of the most godly men I ever met, my senior pastor. And so I was like, let's do this. And so we started fasting. We all decided we're going to fast for 40 days. So. <laughs> no food at all, just water. Yeah, not juice fasting, not, you know, whatever, swirling the stuff. Water, we'll see you in 40 days. Right. Okay, so one of the guys, none of us had ever gone that long. One of the guys tapped out. I'm going to say three days in. Okay? He's like, dude, not even funny. Okay? Not funny, never happening to me again. Now, I'm saying this to my shame, and, you know, if you share what you did in fasting before men, you've already got your reward. Well, I didn't get any reward anyway, so this won't be any problem. <laughs> I made it 11 days. I'm a superhero. <laughs> and here's how I knew it was time to quit. You know that in fasting, you all know this, that after a few days, you actually get to a point where you're not hungry, and you can fast for a very long period of time. But here's how I knew it wasn't to the Lord. This is how I knew I was just doing this so I could say I fasted, or I thought it was spiritual is I kept a little notebook of all the foods I was going to eat when I was done. True? True, Carla. I had a little notebook that's like, dude, three hot dogs. Stuff I'm going to eat when I get done. I just don't think Jesus was all that glorified in that, right? And the other two guys, I think this is true. I think both of them made it to 40 days. I, don't, I remember one did. I don't remember if the other guy did. Um... I think the one guy who made it the longest, I'm trying to think, he's probably the most spiritual of the four of us, and he fasted unto the Lord. He was doing it because he wanted to know the Lord better, and he was trying to get rid of distractions. He wasn't thinking it provided grace in his life, or God owed him one, or when he woke up from his fast, everybody was going to be you know, spiritual in his house. He just, well, I want to know the Lord better, and I have so many distractions, and he did it. But the point of it is, should we as New Testament Christians be fasting? And if we fast, for what purposes, and how do we know that we should do that? And those are the kind of questions we want to start developing chapter 6 going on, is what has God commanded us not simply to believe, but to do for our Christian growth? Okay, let's pray.